When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Into the end zone. Brady's going crazy over there. Now it's legal. Wasn't legal when Reggie did it for Matt. They didn't call it. That's fine. But there's the bush push, and he pushes him into the end zone. is happening everybody i am so excited yes that was by the way my favorite line of the night throwing a little bit of snark at uh, reggie and matt and brady more specifically uh during last week's penn state purdue game um what's up everybody welcome in here we are uh finally i know it's been a long time coming this is the joel Klatt show uh a college football podcast and i am uh, so excited to be here Remember to subscribe and, you know, download and do all of that jazz um, and rate review. We'd love to hear your comments, see your comments. Who knows? You could make it onto the show. I could be making fun of you at some point, which is always awesome. A little clap back. Um, but yeah, it, it, very excited to be here. Listen, folks, I started this because college football coverage has become inherently frustrating for a lot of fans. And we wanted to provide a place that we fear that, that we feel can be authoritative and fair in college football and and really just take you deeper into the sport and everything that's going on with the sport. So that's why I decided to jump in the space and start this podcast. And I'm really excited about it. Uh, so welcome in. And um, this first one, we wanted to wait until we had games rather than just speculate and do all the, you know, all the preseason nonsense. We wanted to go ahead and have games so that we had some concrete things to react to and to talk about. And boy, did week one deliver. My goodness, we had huge matchups. So we're going to get into Ohio State Notre Dame. We'll obviously get into Georgia and what they did to Oregon, the Pac-12's week one, how that's going or not going. We'll get into that a little bit. And by the way, this is not going to be an overreaction. So what I'm going to tell you is absolutely true. And then college football playoff expansion just happens like a Friday news dump. Like, how are we doing now? It's just like, oh, yeah, hey, by the way, college football fans, you know that thing that you've been waiting for forever? It's going to happen. And so we're going to react to that, and I'm going to tell you exactly what you need to know about what they're planning on doing, what they're proposing uh, to do with this 12-team playoff, and, and why it's going to be beneficial. So all of that is coming up. And by the way, we're going to have two other uh, pods every week, so we'll have three episodes every single week we'll have monday uh, monday morning wednesday morning and then uh, i think thursday um i think that's when when it's coming out i'm pretty sure that that's the case anywho let's get into this week's ball games and we got to start with i think the biggest matchup 
uh, and the biggest game, the one that sucked kind of all the oxygen of week one into it. And that was Ohio State and Notre Dame. And boy, Ryan Day has got to be thrilled with exactly how that game played out. We have to be able to win that way. We do. We have to find ways to win like that because there's going to be games, certainly in the Big Ten like that. You know, Notre Dame's kind of built like some of the Big Ten teams we play. And so, you know, for teams that want to run the ball and then, you know, eat up the clock and keep the offense off the field, and we have to run the ball in those moments like we did, we had to, we had to do that. And that was something that we spent a lot of time on the offseason saying we have to be able to win ugly on offense. We have to stop the run on defense. And that's what happened tonight. And so, you know, they all count the same. And you have to figure out, based on who you're going in, how do you want to win that game? And when you have that versatility, man, it, it's going to pay off down the road. Folks, you achieve what you emphasize. Ryan Day just said it right there after the game. We emphasize running the football, getting tougher. They heard the noise. Let me get into that in just a moment. But first, you have to touch on Notre Dame for a moment because a lot of the analysis and at least my thoughts in the game were watching it with the questions that Ohio State had for their team throughout the offseason. Coming off a year in which they didn't go to the playoffs, they lost to Michigan for the first time in a decade. They had some major questions, all right? And they had to answer them. Notre Dame did not have those questions. I believe that Notre Dame played that game with minimal pressure on them. Obviously, they wanted to win. I'm not telling you that they didn't want to win. But Marcus Freeman in his very first uh, uh, game as the official head coach and not the interim head coach, I think this is, this is the type of moment that Notre Dame was playing with house money, okay? I don't think that there was a lot of pressure on them. And because of that, Ohio State comes into that game with all the pressure on them and with significant questions about who they were and how they were going to win football games. Just go back to last season, okay? So let's start with, with last season. If, if you're not watching Saturday night's game with at least – last season in your rearview mirror, then you're not going to know how significant it was for Ohio State to win this way. First and foremost, Oregon kind of took it to Ohio State physically in a game, in a non-conference game in the shoe earlier in the year. Gus and I called it, and yes, there were some structural issues with the Ohio State defense, there's no doubt. But more so than that, they, they just, they couldn't run the ball. They had the ball run against them incredibly effective. And they ended up losing the game because it was put all on C.J. Stroud's ability to throw the ball down the field, and he wasn't up to the task that day, and the Ducks won the game. You fast forward, Nebraska, they get into kind of a similar style game, which they shouldn't have. I mean, full disclosure, guys, we walked in there. Another game that we called, by the way, we walk into Lincoln, and it's like we're the Grim Reaper, right? Like Scott Frost is going to lose his job if they lose this game 65-10, and everybody knows it. And so we're meeting with Scott Frost, and it's just like this black cloud over our meetings. Um, we had been to Nebraska a few years prior, and it was Mike Riley's, one of his last games. And it was like, man, this is eerily similar. And then they went out there, and Ohio State didn't play very well. Nebraska did play uh, very effective. And they were able to run the ball a little bit. Ohio State didn't run the ball very well, and they were in a one-possession game late. They ended up winning. How? By Jackson Smith and Jigba going absolutely crazy in that game. I think he set the Ohio State record, single-game record for catches that day in Lincoln. Then you go on to the Michigan game. Michigan only had to throw four passes in the second half to beat Ohio State. They beat them up physically. So now you go into the offseason, 
in an offseason in which you finally lose to Michigan. And the entire question for OSU was really about your physicality. Are they tough enough? Did they fix the defense that was so porous against Oregon and at times against Michigan late in the season? Did they fix it um, from the Rose Bowl moving forward? So they hired Jim Knowles, they changed the scheme, and then are they tough enough? Two major question marks for Ohio State, and I believe that they answered them very well week one against Notre Dame. First and foremost, folks, when you've got 10 minutes left on the clock and you've got a lead, and you go 14 plays in seven minutes and score a touchdown, 95 yards, no questioning your toughness after that, in particular against a team that's built pretty physically. I mean, Notre Dame is a heck of a football team. I still think that they're going to be one of the better teams in the country. And that series was incredible. Yes, there was some plays made by the quarterback. Mayan Williams was terrific. The catch on the sidelines was fantastic. But more than anything else, when Notre Dame knew that Ohio State was going to run the ball, they were still able to run the ball. The mark of a really tough run game is the ability to run the ball when everyone knows that you have to run it. Not that you're going to run it, that you have to run it. And right there, Ohio State had to run the ball, and they were su still successful doing so. So uh, uh, that's a big momentum boost to that offensive line and that offense. Secondly, did they fix the defense? I thought their defense played really well. Now, I don't know how great Notre Dame's offense is. I will tell you that Tyler Buckner gave you a little bit of mojo and flash from that quarterback position, and normally that's something that Ohio State was really struggling with, in particular from the linebacker position a year ago. So Ohio State fans, I would be excited about this defense if I were you. Schematically, I loved what they were doing. Jack Sawyer was standing up. This is the true Oklahoma State defense from a year ago. The linebackers looked much, much faster. The corners looked really good. I thought that the safeties inserted themselves in, and they played really well. And the defense played one of their better games that I've seen in the last couple of years. So both of the major questions that Ohio State had, they were able to answer in week one and get a win against Notre Dame. Um, a couple of other thoughts on this. I think that that game and the style in which the Buckeyes won will mean more to them during the course of the season than if they went out there and Stroud hit uh, Smith and Jigba for you know 12 catches for 200 yards. Because we've seen that already, and we've seen the ceiling for that offense and that style of play. And it wasn't what Buckeye fans want. It didn't get them to the playoff. It didn't get them to the national championship. And so this style, maybe it's something where you can win gutty games. You can still win a shootout if need be. And I still think they can probably do that. So now they're more diverse in the style of football that they can play and win with, which is really important, really important. Last thing then in this game is that the recruiting implications. Did you hear the note that Fowler gave? Great note by Fowler, by the way. Epic note. At the end, they're shooting the sideline. He said they've got 10 uncommitted five-star players they're watching that game that's insane and it looks like they just put all their eggs in that basket you've got lebron on the sidelines jason tatum was sitting there a dookie wearing an ohio state jersey that i mean we will feel and see the reverberations of that i think for quite some time but that that clearly was i think the biggest moment of the saturday week 1 saturday on college football for me was that game and the style with which ohio state won that game moving forward how about georgia what folks can we say that the national champion reigning 
who's ranked number third in the country to start the year was underrated? I think so. And as Kirby told us, it was all about the talent. I got a lot of respect for that. You know, we tell those players around that field, Dan Lane recruited And Dan Lane did a tremendous job for the University of Georgia while he worked for the University of Georgia. And now he's working for Oregon. He's going to do a really good job at Oregon. He's relentless. And they'll bounce back from this. And uh, he knows that we, that we got better players. And uh, he'll never say it. But he knows we got better players. And I respect how he works. I, I love bites like that, right? Dan, Dan Lanning did a heck of a job here at University of Georgia. We just got better players than they do. I mean, that's... <laughs> if that's not like the epitome of like the SEC flex right there, is Kirby Smart basically just saying like, yeah, hey, good luck, Dan. All those players that you recruited here. And we've got more numbers on this later in the show, just about the five stars and the talent that they did have. But let's just talk about the game for a, a moment. Georgia looked great. And folks, I'll be the first to admit, like, I didn't expect them to be that good. I thought to myself, boy, like, they caught it perfect last year. Their defense was amazing, historically good. And they caught Bama in what you would consider is, for Bama at least, maybe a transitional year. And they were able to squeak out a win in which Bama's wide receivers got hurt. And I thought, man, they're not beating Alabama this year. No, not this Alabama team. Not with Will Anderson and Bryce Young. And, like, Georgia's not going to be able to do that this year. And then they rolled out there and housed Oregon. And I'll get to Oregon in a moment because, yes, I think that Oregon was overrated. And Bo Nix is going to have nightmares of Georgia for the rest of his life. And I understand that. Trust me, there are teams that I have nightmares about. To this day, I'm 40 years old. But they are so fast and talented. I mean, everywhere. That Georgia team looked like the defense did not take a step back, even with all the NFL talent gone. It looked like the offense may have taken a step forward. Folks, Stetson Bennett needs to stop being overlooked. I'm guilty of this, by the way. I treat Stetson Bennett at times like college football's house pet. He's like, everybody's like, lovable dog it's like oh that's just Stetson the walk-on man yeah isn't he great isn't he great winning with all that talent around him ha oh he's so cute he's so cute and he rolled out there and just flat bald so Stetson good on you man because that performance Stetson Bennett looked calm he was accurate the talent and speed that Oregon had didn't phase him at all. So now we've seen this guy take his team to a national championship game, and he played flawlessly during the playoff against Michigan, a really good defense, and against Alabama, a very good defense. Now he rolls out against what a lot of people considered was going to be like a defensive-led, strong, talented, motivated, Dan Lanning-coached Oregon team and took him to pieces. Took him to pieces. So it's 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 time to stop being like, hey, you know, Georgia wins and, and Stetson Bennett just manages the game. He's doing more than that. He was making plays. The guy was throwing on time. He was accurate with the ball. I thought he was outstanding. I think Stetson Bennett played outstanding football. As good as anybody out there, in particular for the stage he was on, I thought that it was tremendous. And by the way, this Georgia team, whom I did not give a lot of, of attention to in the preseason because I thought to myself, they're not going to be able to do this again. 
All right. They're not going to be able to beat Alabama again. And guess what? Yeah, they can. Yep. Absolutely. So if you're a Bama fan, your eyebrows better be raised right now. Why? Georgia is loaded and they're ready. And Georgia fans, I don't think you had a one hit wonder. I don't think you're going to have to wait. Whatever it was. What was it? 30 years, 40 years before you get another championship. Okay. Because this team is legitimately national championship ready based on the week one performance against Oregon, granted in kind of a home game, but that was, that was pretty special folks. All right. So, uh, I, for one, overlooked Georgia a little bit. I still had them number three in my poll, but I moved them up to number two. This is not about what Ohio State didn't do or how they looked or, oh, it was sloppy or ugly. This had nothing to do with Ohio State. My moving Georgia up on Twitter over the weekend was wholly about Georgia looking like a team that can win a national championship and a quarterback that is poised to have a monster season. Monster season. So the Bulldogs look absolutely fabulous. Meanwhile, in the Pac-12, folks, I don't want to like overstate this or jump to hyperbole on episode number one, but what a horrendous day for the Pac-12. I mean, horrendous. And you might think, and, and I've had people tell me this already, like, hey, you know, slow down. It's week one. Everything can be explained. Um, can it, can it, when, when your three top teams have things go drastically against them, the PAC 12 had an awful week. And for me, it started when Georgia absolutely dismantled Oregon more on that in a moment, but really was driven home later in the day when Utah has a chance to get a win against what a lot of people think is kind of a middle-of-the-road SEC East team in the swamp, and then this happened. Guns it for the end zone. Intercepted! Amari Birdie just intercepted it. One yard in the end zone. And that's a W for the Gators. 29-26, the final score. Florida takes down number seven, Utah. Oh, the heartbreak. And it was heartbreaking for Utah. There's no doubt. And just elation for Gator uh, Gator fans. Uh, let's start with the immediate reaction to Cameron Rising throwing that interception late. Okay, I'm watching the game, and it gets down there, and, and Utah has no timeouts. There was some confusion amongst the broadcast and and the actual game as to how many timeouts Utah had. But once it was established, like, no timeouts left. And I believe it was just under 30 seconds to play. And they're snapping the football. Downs aren't a problem. They've got a few snaps. There's only two things that a quarterback has to be thinking about. There's only two things, folks, that you cannot do as a quarterback in that moment. Cannot do it. Can't take a sack. You cannot turn it over. You can throw it into the second deck. You can, out of the back of the end zone, anything but a turnover there. Ask Russell Wilson and the Seattle Seahawks, right? Malcolm Brown picking that ball off in the Super Bowl. You cannot turn the ball over. As a quarterback, if you're going to throw the ball over the middle of the field, inside the 10-yard line at any point in the game, you've got to be sure that you can get that ball into the tight window. 
if there's any second level player that has any chance of undercutting one of those little hook routes or an under route in the end zone, you cannot throw the ball, period. If I was coaching a quarterback, I would tell him if there's any indecision whatsoever, if he's not wide open, if it's not perfectly on time, if it's not perfectly on rhythm, you do not throw a ball over the middle inside the 10. Man, bad things happen. Bad things happen. And Utah has a chance to win the game at a minimum, has a chance to kick a field goal to tie the game, and he throws a pick. Just an egregious error from a player that is a really good player and had a fabulous series up until that point. Now, as as I look at the entirety of the game, Utah was the better team, okay? So Florida still has a lot of work to do. Remember, Utah is the one that made the mistakes inside the five-yard line, inside the 10-yard line a couple of times. The goal line stands for Florida were epic. There's no doubt. You cannot rely on that. And so Utah did what it needed to do. They settled for a couple of field goals when they shouldn't. They turned the ball over inside the red zone, inside the 10. You can't do that and win the game. Okay, so Utah was the better team. Florida made the plays necessary to win. And I think any objective observer of that game would have come away with the same conclusion. Now, that being said, Anthony Richardson was a problem for Utah. They did not have the speed to deal with Richardson on the edge at all. And it's the reason that Florida was able to come back and, and really win that game, stay close, get, get that drive going late in the game, and ultimately win the game. So if I'm a Florida fan, I'm really excited about Richardson and what he did. I can't wait to continue to evaluate this guy because he's strong. He's got immense amount of talent, and I thought he was brilliant. And Utah had no answer for him. So when you when you couple that, when you can't defend their best player, which Utah could not, and then you make those mistakes offensively, you're going to lose the game. Um, big win for Florida. I thought that was a massive win for Florida and now can give them a little bit of momentum. If Richardson plays like that, by the way, they're, I think, the second-best team in the SEC East right away. Okay, you can't say that they're going to be better than Georgia. Maybe they can give Georgia a better game than what they would have or what we expected them to give. But, but folks, like, they're better than Tennessee if he plays like that. They're better than Kentucky if, they, if he plays like that. I think that you would agree with me. Hit me up. Tell me what you think about that take. I think Florida, if Richardson continues to play that well, easily the second-best team in the SEC East. All right, moving on in the Pac-12, Oregon and that beatdown. Let me tell you why this was a real downer for Oregon is because it was not a game that got away from them late. That was an absolute drubbing from the get-go. And don't give me this crap. By the way, I've had I've had Pac-12 fans after me because I tweeted out that, like, hey, awful day for the Pac-12. Don't give me this crap about, like, hey, uh, it was first, first time head coach and Dan Lanning is he's brand new. I'm sorry. Was Napier not a first time coach for Florida? Like, that's his first game at Florida. Granted, Lanning didn't have head coaching experience, but you can't have one and like without the other. It's tough. That's a tough weekend. That's a tough weekend uh, for the Pac-12 and a, and, and a bummer for them and a bummer for them because I know that they had some, some big expectations coming in. Okay, last thing that I want to get into uh, here today on the, the first episode of our show. On Friday, on the Friday news dump, we got absolute joy. The college football playoff is expanding 
Hallelujah. Am I right? Am I right? All right, Bama fans, Ohio State fans, Georgia fans, you don't care. You're going anyways. I get it. Clemson fans, you're probably in that boat as well. Oklahoma fans, maybe you feel that way a little bit as well. For the rest of us, man, we are elated about the expansion of the college football playoff, and it cannot come soon enough. All right, folks, let's just start with this. I love this sport, and I want this sport to be as as robust and as good as it possibly can be. And in the current model of the four-team playoff, that's impossible because the four-team playoff has been really detrimental to the sport. And, and it's tough to acknowledge that, but it has. It has. Very few great games, and the biggest issue has been the consolidation of all the talent, all the wins, all the definition of success into a hyper-small group of programs. We can't have that. We can't have that. We've got to get to a place where there's more parity in college football. All right, now you've probably heard that argument before, right? Yes, you absolutely have. But I bet you haven't actually heard the numbers behind it. So let's walk through it, all right? Because I want to take you deeper into it, and I want to, I want to make you smarter, okay? The model that's proposed is a 12-team model. The six automatic berths that happen are the six best conference champions in the country. This means that we will every year have at least one group of five, if you want to call it that moving forward, member. That's great for the sport. At least one, maybe two in some years. I'm not, I'm not sure. Then the rest of the playoff will be filled in with the six next six best teams. Those are going to be major conference brands, and, and the numbers bear that out if you go back back and retroactively do this. Now, what you're going to have is the four, top four only conference champs, Great nugget, by the way. They get buys, which, by the way, doesn't this all sound really familiar to those of you that have, like, you know, been following me for a while? Kind of verbatim. What I was giving you last year of, like, hey, this is what they should do. Should be 12. It should be the six best conference champions. It should be the six next best teams. The four best conference champions should get by buys. The other play, uh, teams should play at home. They've got this clause that like, or a, a destination that the home team deems relevant. Fine. Whatever. I, I don't really care about that. I don't think any pipes are freezing at, at, at the shoe in Columbus. And I think that they would rather play at Ohio stadium than go down and play, I don't know, in Ford field or something like that. So I think we're going to have more home games than, than not, but that's a, a, a weird stipulation, and I digress. That being said, though, th this, this model is exactly what I was talking about last year. Having the four buys maintains the relevance of the conference championship games, and it makes sure and, and it means that last year, for example, when Alabama and Georgia played, the winner of that game in the SEC championship game was a big deal because yes, both are of them are gonna go, but they're not just gonna be on equal footing. They're both going to go, but one has a buy, and the other might, depending on where they fall in the rankings, fall on the road. Now, maybe not, but maybe. So these conference championship games retain their meeting, meaning because of the model that they are throwing out there. Um, 
They said that it's going to happen, you know, kind of for sure by 2026, maybe sooner. I'd be shocked if it didn't happen sooner. More on that in later episodes because that's a whole other deal. Um, let's just get into some of the numbers of why the, the four-team playoff has not worked. Okay, we've had 13 different teams make the playoff in the current, current format since its inception in the last eight years. That's only 10% of college football. All right, 10% of the sport, 13 teams. If you retroactively go back those last eight years, back to 2014, 41 teams would have made playoffs. That's a huge deal. That's nearly a third of college football, just under about 32%. So from 10% to 32%, that's a huge deal. I don't care if they lose in the first round. Folks, you have to understand that the only way to define yourself as successful in the modern college football is to make the college football playoff. And only 10% of the teams in the last eight years have been able to say that. That's a problem. That's a problem. Now you're moving forward to a place where you would have 41 teams retroactively. These are the 41 teams that would have gone outside of kind of the big boys that we always talk about. You know, if you, if you look at, Yes, we see that, you know, Bama is always going to be there in Oklahoma and all these teams, new teams that would have qualified for the CFP that did not. Okay, these are the teams. Look at these brands, and some of them would shock you, right? You've got a, what are, What do we got in there? We got a Western Michigan in there, A&M, the Aggies, finally. They get to finally, you know, say that they've been successful. The U is in there. Memphis, Coastal Carolina, the Buffs. Come on, let's go. Buffs, Boise, Auburn, Arizona, Utah, Penn State. By the way, some of these would have been multiple times. Penn State would have been three times. Wisconsin would have been three times. SC, this would have changed college football dramatically. You look at what would have happened over the course of, of the last eight years, and all of these teams would have had an opportunity to go and recruit with this in their back pocket. You can't understate that. And the numbers bear that out. If you go back to 2014, folks, and you look at five-star recruits by school since 2014, let's go to that list. Here's the list compiled from 24-7 Sports of where the five-star talent has gravitated to. Alabama, 40 of them. Georgia, 36, Ohio State, 26, Clemson, 22, LSU, 19. By the way, guess who are the only five schools that have won national championships over that time? I'll wait for it. Talent matters. Stars matter. Those are your five schools. Then you go on in the list, and you're going to see Texas A&M has 19, underachieved probably for that number, but that's okay. USC has 16, severely underachieved for that number. That's okay. Florida State, severely underachieved. Texas, severely underachieved. Penn State, Michigan, both with eight. They're tied at 10. I think it's bad for the sport when you shove all of the recruits into just a, a, a small area. Folks, Bama has double the number of five stars that LSU has. That's not good for the sport. So, yeah, LSU rises up for a year and they win a national championship, but we need to have this be dispersed. And my argument is if you go back and those 41 teams can, can recruit and, and Wisconsin can say we've made three playoffs and Penn State can say we've made four playoffs and those other brands can then get some of these five-star athletes 
and separate them out over a greater number of schools, I think that we can achieve some parity. Now, here's an important note, folks. This is not going to happen overnight. All right. So this is going to take some time to unwind. The Bama, Georgia dominance in recruiting, Ohio State dominance in recruiting is going to take some time to unwind. All right. But it will get there if more teams are able to define themselves as top end successful and a playoff berth will do that. For example, let's just take my, my alma mater. They would have made a playoff under Mike McIntyre. Do you think Mike McIntyre would have gotten fired a couple of years later if he could have capitalized on a playoff berth with a stellar recruiting class? But as it was, because our model was broken, Colorado won their division, lost to Washington in the Pac-12 championship game, got passed in the rankings subjectively by USC, whom they won the division over. So USC got to go to the Rose Bowl. Colorado had to go to the Alamo Bowl. They ended up getting beat by Oklahoma State, and you don't feel like you can capitalize on what was their best season since 2000, I don't know, five, four, right? So, so again, we have we have been detrimental to the sport by defining all the success up there at the top end. It then is reciprocated in the number of recruits that go to those schools. We have 10 uncommitted five-star players at Ohio State. Why? Because those those few programs are the only programs that can legitimately say, hey, you can come here and you can win and play for a national championship. So hallelujah, folks. The playoff is changing, and I can't wait, and I know you can't wait either because over time I do feel like this is going to help the sport and it's going to uh, help the sport get to a place where it can be the best it can possibly be. Now, speaking of loving the sport this weekend, if you follow me on Twitter, you can do that at Joel Clatt, by the way, you can follow me on Instagram at uh, Joel underscore Clatt. And you would have seen that for the first time as a father, I've got three boys. You're going to see them. They're back there, by the way, my beautiful wife and my three boys in that picture. But I got to take them to their first Buffs game. And um, I know that you're going to think this is weird, but I'm actually getting a little bit emotional because uh, it's the first time I've gotten to take them. Because of my job, it's the only bad part of my, my job. The only bad part is that I just don't get to take my boys to see the place that I experienced and loved. Um, the reason I'm getting a little emotional is that I remember vividly um, my dad taking me to my first Colorado game. And we sat uh, not far from where we took this picture, actually. A picture of me and my three boys in the end zone right after Colorado ran out. And uh, Colorado was playing Oklahoma. This was a great Oklahoma Switzer teams, by the way, the mid eighties, it was uh, uh, Bosworth was there and like, we went up there. My dad takes me to the game and I saw that Buffalo run out and I saw Colorado run out behind them. And I fell in love with this sport and I've been in love with it ever since, ever since for 35 years. I, I love college football. All I wanted to do was go to Colorado and suit up and run out behind Ralphie. I was fortunate enough to do that. Played Colorado, played at Colorado from 02 to 05. And so I got to experience firsthand, even as a starting quarterback for a few years, that environment that you see there on your screen and, and the filled up Folsom field, they, they had it blacked out and, and the emotions of running out behind Ralphie. And I just got to tell you folks, because of the scheduling cork where we didn't, Gus and I didn't do a Saturday game. I was able to take my boys and right before that picture, 
I was wiping the tears away from my face um, in excitement and love because I love Colorado. I love this sport. And uh, I just wanted to share that with you, a little Clap family outing to a Buffs game. And they got to see Ralphie and, and watch her run. Uh, go over to my um, Instagram and, and Twitter if you want to see some more pictures from that happening. That's going to do it for us tonight. Um, you can follow the show on social media, any of the platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Joel Klatt Show. Coming up this week, folks, we got a lot to get into. We still got to get into Michigan, all those QBs that they're playing, two-quarterback system. Bama, Texas this week. Gus and I are going to be there. I'm going to break down both teams from week one and tell you what you need to know about them. Uh, Brent Venables and Oklahoma. We still got to get into the Sooners and how they looked in Venables' first game. So, so much coming up this week. Check it out. Download, subscribe, click your like buttons, review us. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. We'll be back on Wednesday. 